This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Leanna Tan, here to give you some of Matt's best tidbits to help you live healthier, happier lives. Today, I want to talk about entrepreneurship. I think it's one of the great things about America, this idea of being able to go from rags to riches. And as I was listening through a few different options for interviews to playback, I felt like this was a good topic to cover today, and I I wanted to give a few different angles on the subject of business and entrepreneurship. It really is a huge part of what holds our nation together. So today I'm going to play a few different interviews for you so we can learn how to be better business savvy ourselves and how to teach others about entrepreneurship. This first interview is with Neil Patel, and he talks with Matt about 11 mental habits for being business savvy. This is – I love this topic because there is is an inherent mental strength, it seems like, with successful business because if not – You'd be quitting. I mean, business is tough, cutthroat even at times. Talk to us about how you came up with uh, your 11 mental habits that uh, you, that you uh, wrote about in, on Inc. Magazine. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, just years of experiencing. So, uh, you know, like being in business for whoo, 16 years now, no, 15 years, Yeah. you eventually figure out things, right? I'm not the smartest cookie, but through trial and error, you really figure out what not to do and what to do and what to focus on, right? So I like looking at it as a process of elimination. You just slowly don't do this, do this, don't do this. Um, but the real is, I mean, and you see a weird thing going on with Donald Trump where he has a completely different, and he's, I mean, I guess an extreme case, but he's a business uh, success. Um, but he he takes in, it seems like, a lot of your uh, these mental habits – because some of these, the very first one you mentioned is have a po- have positive beliefs, believe in opportunity, in the positive op- opportunities that are out there. Yeah, because it, it, you're very negative all the time, then nothing's going to end up happening, right? If you don't believe things can happen, then why even give it a shot? For that reason, you need to have positive beliefs. And speaking about Donald Trump, right, he also has, which is the second one, which is have unshakable confidence mm. no matter what you end up telling donald trump win lose or it's not gonna work the way he doesn't care he believes in his own way and he's super confident in his own abilities do you think you're born with that i mean how do you it's a habit you're talking about a mental habit but how do you i mean i know people that are brilliant you know they've they've gone to great schools but they still don't have that unshakable confidence you get it over time. I don't think uh, some people could be born with it, but most people end up learning it over time, right? Yeah. Donald Trump, when he was born, came out of his mother's womb. He wasn't just super confident. Yeah, he gained that over time. And a lot of times it's life experiences that make you more and more confident, such as if someone, let's say you're working in the corporate world and someone keeps telling you a good job and more people telling you a good job. And after a few years, eventually you're going to be like, I'm really good at what I do. Why? Because everyone keeps saying, you're amazing, you're doing a great job, uh, you're kicking butt, whatever it may be. And eventually that helps build up your confidence. You're like, I'm really good at what I do. (laughs) Yeah, you start to believe it, don't you? Another great point you bring up as a mental habit is use fear as your fuel. Uh, 
Uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, sure. So if you look at us as human beings, a lot of the reason why we survived and lasted so many years is because of fear, right? For example, we know that, like, hey, you touch fire, you're going to get burned. Be afraid of it. Be afraid of earthquakes, tornadoes, etc. common disasters, whatever it may be. So similar in life, how there's things that you could be afraid of, same goes in your business. It could be the fear of failing, the fear of not succeeding, whatever it may be, fear of letting people down. You can use that fear instead of having it be like, oh, I don't want to let people down. I can't give it a shot. It should be more so like, oh, I'm afraid of failing. I'm going to give it everything and make sure I succeed so I don't fail. Because I guess in the end, um, it's a constant source of potential fuel, right? I mean, if, if fear, if you're somebody that feels fear a lot or uh, is, you know, noticing your fear, that's not going away. This is something that you could have every day in the business world. That's correct. Yes. Do you, do you notice it as, I mean, as you work with experts uh, around the country and, you know, consult with experts, is it, I mean, I look at these mental traits. Some people just are, they're just tough people. They're just, they're almost, um, they're almost non-feeling. They're non-emotive. Does, is there an advantage to not being a feeler? In the yeah, business well, world? Well, when you don't have as many emotions, uh, everything's way more cut, uh, like black and white, cut and dry, right? So over time, emotions is good, but over time what you'll realize is you'll have less and less emotions when it comes to your business thought process and thinking because a lot of these emotions uh, can cloud your judgment, right? You want to have a clear mind when making decisions. Right. And I guess um, I get the the tweaking of the fear as your fuel, I guess, makes it so that if I do start making – if when I make my mistakes, which are going to happen to anybody in business, um, I'm going to be able to look at my mistake as an opportunity, a learning moment instead of a major failure. That's correct. And you have to think about it this way. Everyone fails in business. Um, they make mistakes. So look at – uh, for example, Mark Zuckerberg, right? His first uh, shot at taking on Snapchat didn't do so well. Uh, when he, when Instagram started rolling out features that were similar to Snapchat, that did quite well. He learned from his mistakes. Not everyone has a perfect track record. And the way I look at failure and mistakes is technically you're not failing unless you just like, give up. If you don't give up and you keep at it, there's still hope. So, you know, keep pushing forward, learn from your mistakes, learn from what didn't work out, and keep trying things. That's what all the greats do, right? It's like you think every shot that Bill Gates took was successful, every shot that Elon Musk took was successful. No, they all had their ups and downs. They learn from their mistakes, they keep pushing forward, and they don't give up. Hmm. Do you, I mean, I, when I look at it, it's it seems like the more time, and you're saying this, the more time we're doing these principles the easier they get to do over time. And some of that is, you know, if I'm, if I'm not, I'm more willing to risk with my second million maybe than my first million. Um, is it success? Does, does it, does this become easier once you are having some success? Yeah, it definitely becomes easier. Um, because again, you'll start having more confidence in yourself and your ability uh, you also know that once you start having some success that you can make it back as well if you lose it. Mm. Do um, one of the mental habits you were talking about that is they kind of go hand in hand, refrain from second guessing yourself and don't dwell on your mistakes. 
uh, th- this again seems like the idea that don't hinder through thinking your future action. That's correct. A, a lot of people uh, just take no action and don't do well because they keep second guessing themselves, right? Like it's analysis paralysis. Everyone like, keeps overanalyzing and thinking instead of just going out there and doing. Does when you talk about this and you, I mean, I know you write a lot of articles uh, and do a lot of work with companies like Amazon, NBC, GM. How do their, I mean, the, their leaders, I'm assuming, um, a lot of them are young, younger tech. Uh, do you see a generational difference in some of these philosophies or do they, do they kind of cross generation? I see them cross generation, right? So, uh, with a lot of these companies, funny enough, in management, they're not that young. You're still seeing people in their 40s and 50s uh, leading these upper management roles because they just have more experience when it comes to managing, you know, large quantities of people in big departments. Hmm. Is uh, is the world of training, of corporate development, of management development, is it is it what it used to be? Because nowadays it seems like, too, they can go online, they can find a website like yours they can they can learn more just kind of you know virtual learning versus sitting in a classroom at the at uh at the company is is learning these skills is it changing in how we go about taking them in it is uh you know there's places like Udemy where you can get training online you don't necessarily need to keep going to college to get more training uh, you're learning online by reading uh, first-hand experiences. You know, the YouTubes of the world, they're giving you a lot of videos and trading materials. So, yeah, times are changing. When you uh, were putting together this list of the 11 mental habits that will improve your business savvy that uh, you wrote about on Inc.com, one of the uh, the points that you made is the fact that we need to maintain objectivity. And it seems like in our world where a lot of us aren't, you know, necessarily – gathering data from neutral objective sources. We all kind of go choose our favorite source of news, our favorite source of information. How do we maintain objectivity in a world where, you know, a lot of times we don't have to get it? Yeah, that also comes out to when you're making decisions, you need to just sit back, right, try to clear your emotions, and then from there make your decisions. Like, that's the simplest way, and the reason being is when your emotions, that's when things get really clouded, um, and you don't necessarily can maintain your objectivity, but assuming that you can just push your emotions to the side just for this decision and look at it from an outsider's perspective, you can view things as, like, a neutral third party. Mm. And it, it, I, I know as a kind of a businessman that it's sometimes it's hard when you're everyone's on your payroll and everyone's listening to you and they think you know what you're doing that everybody a lot of times you don't get as much feedback but I guess you're saying ask for it put it out there get people to give you other points of view that's correct push it um, another point you make that I f- really find interesting and I've seen it in my own life is minimize multitasking Talk about that and the impact that this this mentality that we're multitaskers, how does that negatively impact our business sensibilities? When you're multitasking, you're not focusing. When you're not focusing, you're not doing one thing exceptionally well. So if you just sit down, focus on one thing, and that's it, you're much more likely to do better. 
right? Because it's like you put more time, attention, energy into that one thing and get it perfect. Yeah. Or get it right, execute faster, see results quicker. Does, it's all about focus. It, I mean, it really is. We can't do everything, right? We've got to choose maybe the one or two things that make the biggest difference and and make and, and, and take advantage of those. How do we know how to prioritize what's the number one or number two thing? Yeah, uh, you look at it from lowest hanging fruit, right? So once you're like, okay, here's the lowest hanging fruit in the business, then you end up going from there. Um, and I usually prioritize based on what's the lowest hanging fruit that could have the biggest impact. That's smart. And then you, you just, like, what can I do that have the most leverage today and then just start doing that one thing. That's correct, yes. That's cool. That's pretty basic, isn't it? Talk about uh, your number 11, um, know when to take a break. There is a point, and as we're entering the holiday season, there is a point that it's just probably better to go, you know, you know, refuel, reignite your own candle, get yourself back in track than it is to keep chasing something that's not going to happen this year. Yeah, uh, if, if you don't take breaks, eventually you're going to end up getting burned out. And for that reason, you want to take breaks. So w- when you're feeling tired, exhausted, uh, you can keep pushing forward, but sometimes just taking a break re-energizes you and you're better off. Yeah. I mean, I needed one. I got so sick because I hadn't taken a break that I had to take a break. Well, Neil, we appreciate your great insight. Again, everybody go to the website, neilpatel.com, neilpatel.com to get more information about uh, Neil's uh, great writings and other information opportunities about 11 mental habits that will improve your business savvy. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We just learned a few different mental habits for being business savvy from Neil Patel. He talks about the importance of believing things can happen and using fear as fuel. He also gave some advice about not dwelling on mistakes because that will only limit your successes. And success is what makes these mental habits eventually become easier. So now that you know a few tips on how to be business savvy... How can you teach others about it? This next interview is kind of the crux of today's show. I think it's a really interesting perspective on the influence and purpose of entrepreneurship. Steve Mariotti founded a network of teaching entrepreneurship, and he believes teens from lower-income communities and those with major life challenges such as disease or disability are the treasure troves of future business leaders. He talks with Matt about the benefits of a market economy and why these communities should be targeted as entrepreneurship students. I think this is a huge opportunity. I as a, I am an entrepreneur, but what I've been finding is as I talk to, you know, some young adults, those that are that are actually entering college, there's there's kind of an inherent fear of starting your own thing versus getting in, you know, just get your job, do your job. And I would bet in um, kind of in, in lower economic communities, there might be even more of a, of a fear of, of taking such a risk. Is that – how did you get into teaching entrepreneurship 
and building your network for teaching entrepreneurship? Um, well, I got started in 1981. Um, I'm 63 now, so I've been working um, in the field for 35 years. And um, I got mugged in September of 81 and went to a therapist, and uh, Albert Ellis was his name, and he recommended that I uh, go into the toughest schools in New York City and just begin teaching, which I did, and I totally overcame my post-traumatic uh, stress disorder. I totally stopped thinking about the mugging and um, basically stayed as an educator of low-income youth uh, for over three decades. So it's been a great, um, wonderful career for me. Huh. I mean, and, um, what, what do you see? What do you see with those low-income youth when it comes to uh, entrepreneurialism? Uh, it, I think that this is a huge breakthrough for our country and for the world. I've found that children that are born into poverty or children that are born with an illness or uh, with a physical defect often are more capable of becoming entrepreneurs. Um, they have uh, a different view of risk. They don't view life in terms of hierarchies, uh, which means that you have a boss and a boss's boss and a boss's boss and, you know, you judge yourself on your grades and what your SAT scores were and all that kind of stuff. But children that are, are born in, with a lot of pain in their lives and a lot of obstacles in their lives, and it can be any income uh, because disease or depression or physical handicap um, can also put one in a position of looking at markets in a very unique way. And you get a head start as far as the entrepreneurial mind frame. So I think that the... Uh, the most um, market-oriented people in our in our country are actually teenage, um, low-income African-American men, and between the ages of 15 and, and 22, just to give you a, a practical example of the implications of that. Mm. And if people would poll at that age group and say, "Are you in favor of?" entrepreneurship and low taxes and less regulation and do you think that um, you know everybody should be uh, have the skills to start a small business I think they pull you know uh, at the Mitt Romney level to give a practical example yeah and I think that's a gold mine for our community that they don't want to go into the welfare system or or um, uh, be part of a a, a large state apparatus. Their heroes are all entrepreneurs. So I wanted to make that point. Oh, that's huge. And um, I mean, it's also cool because you, sometimes you'd see, you'll see somebody come out of uh, even that demographic you were just expressing, the Afri African-American community, and you'll see maybe an entertainer or an athlete that's come out and they don't just come out um, and you know make money as an athlete, but they turn it into like a major mega enterprise. I, I look at just people yeah. that uh, Magic Johnson is a, is an enormous business owner, and he wasn't and just and a basketball player. Michael Jordan, yeah, and Derek Jeter, yeah. You know, it's um, and people miss that uh, somehow. The media isn't picking up on that, but that's a huge advantage asset we have in our country. Is that many people that we've assumed 
weren't going to be interested in business. It's the exact opposite. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I've also found... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I've also found... Um, I, I did a program for two years with children that were terminally ill, and I found that the nurses would come up to me and say their rate of depression would drop by 90%. And then I taught a program for three years with young people that were paralyzed from either birth or from an accident, and they had the highest rates of business formation that I've ever seen in my career. Out of 46 you know, uh, young people that had to use a wheelchair or, or something even more um, intense than that, we ended up having 37 ongoing businesses of at least $3,000 a year. So there's a a huge amount of business acumen and business desire in communities that we never think about. It's a hidden asset. Mm. And that's why I think if we can tap into that, we're going to have a renaissance in this country and and around the, and, and around the world as well. It really makes sense. You, you're you're saying we need to target the people that might seem like the least um, desirable to target, except they're desirable because they they understand conflict, they understand a hard life, and they're willing to kind of take the risks that you need to take to be an entrepreneur. Yes, and one other thing too, whenever you put into a difficult situation from either health or poverty or, and we all go through it at times in our life, but you see the world from a different perspective. And if those people are taught to look at that perspective as a comparative advantage or a potential comparative advantage, um, that can be a gold mine. Mm. They'll see things, inventions or processes or services that one would only see if one was in a bad neighborhood or in a hospital or in a community that was not doing well. My favorite economist, F.A. Hayek, who won the Nobel Prize in 74, and I was fortunate enough to um, um, be his um, assistant for four months. Oh, wow. But he'd always write about the concept of unique knowledge of time and place. And he'd say that every human being has unique knowledge of time and place. All that means is a particular time and a particular place, you might want a hot dog stand. It's nothing complicated. But so that that meant that every human being could make their living in a market economy. Hmm. And I've always agreed with that. Because they bring a unique knowledge about what needs, what might go somewhere in their world that could be profitable. Exactly. And they become the specialist yeah. in that unique time period and a unique set of pain or unique uh, issues. I've written a lot about it, and um, I want to make a little plug for my, yeah. my um, uh, two books that have sold really well this year. And I'm really hoping they'll continue to sell because I think they can help a lot of people. One is an entrepreneur's manifesto which makes the case for an entrepreneurial revolution worldwide as a way to keep our democracies and to solve problems and to kill poverty once and for all. And the other book that sold 
almost a million copies worldwide is the Young Entrepreneur's Guide to Starting and Running a Business. Hmm. And um, that I did as founder of the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, and I'm now a fellow at Philadelphia University, which has incredible programs to help people create products and to market them. It's one of my favorite uh, uh, schools uh, in the whole world, frankly. You know what, let's – two great books. Um, I'd love to come back and talk about the manifesto more and find out what are some of the points? What are some of the lessons that uh, that make up the Entrepreneur's Manifesto and, and what is this movement you're trying to start and what we can do kind of more at a local level with our own kids, our own families? Uh, it is such an interesting idea. We'll take a break more with Steve Mariotti and his book, An Entrepreneur's Manifesto. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you lead better lives. We'll be right back. Thanks for sticking with us. I'm Lana Tan, and this is the Matt Townsend Show. We're in the middle of an interview with Steve Mariotti about teaching entrepreneurship to kids. In the last segment, he said that he believes the prime target for entrepreneurship students are low-income teenage African-American males, as well as children and teens with a lot of personal challenges such as terminal illnesses and disabilities, because these people understand risk. Being willing to take risks is one of the main characteristics of a successful entrepreneur, and people in these communities are more willing to do that. They also have a deeper understanding of conflict and a different perspective of life, which can work as a comparative advantage for them. He said these people who grew up on welfare usually don't want to be a part of that anymore. They have a strong drive to have economic and financial freedom and to have things of their own, such as a business. Also, the actual activity of growing a business and creating something of their own, he says has been shown to reduce depression rates in some people. These people understand facets of life and needs of people that many of us don't understand, which can lead them to specialize in certain things. So as we continue listening to this interview and this perspective of entrepreneurship and the future of business leaders, Steve Mariotti will talk about what he calls his manifesto and this movement he has to empower low-income communities to teach entrepreneurship to their young generations so they can raise the inner cities themselves. He's he's trying to, um, I guess, motivate and 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 instigate a, a movement where we take underprivileged youth, um, also maybe people that we we tend to discard in our community because of um, just you name it, because of lack of opportunity, because of illness or sickness or any kind of uh, just disability. And instead, let's empower those people because they tend to be ideal for creating opportunities of entrepreneuring um, to to go out and and make a new life and really really create a revolution financially for the inner cities as well. Um, am, am I on the right uh, mark here, Steve? Trying to describe your mission? Absolutely. Um, you hit all the key points, and in my book, an entrepreneur's manifesto. 
um, I developed the Entrepreneur's Bill of Rights, which um, I don't think has ever been done before. At least I couldn't find it in the literature. But it's, it's things like the right to have a fair and simple tax code, uh, the right to fail, the right to seek new opportunities, the right to be different, um, the uh, right to destroy uh, uh, another business. And by destroy, I, I mean that in an economic sense. But like, yeah, take compete. Right compete. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it's a beautiful thing for the consumer. And the right to create, and of course, the right to not be over-regulated. We've got um, so many issues with taxation and regulation, which don't disturb wealthy people because they have lawyers and accountants. But for somebody who's in poverty, the tax code is incomprehensible. It's mm. just terrible. And many of the regulations prevent low-income people from starting businesses um, because the existing businesses, the existing uh, establishment doesn't want the competition. And I, I just think that's unethical and wrong. We need to get our tax code right. We need to deregulate. We need to get entrepreneurial education into every school system starting at kindergarten or first grade. And I, I want to tell your um, listeners a, a very quick story. Yeah. A uh, year and a half ago, I was invited to Cambodia and to Vietnam. Um, and I was invited by the governments to give advice on how to end poverty. And as re- you recall, uh, Vietnam is a socialist or communist government. Right. So I, I went with great uh, trepidation and, and, frankly, reluctance. But when I got there, the first thing I said, you've got to get out of, of communism, socialism, and you've got to get your tax code right. It turns out that Vietnam has a 10% flat tax and that low-income people don't pay any tax. And they are growing at almost 8% a year. Oh, wow. Which means they're doubling every nine years. Now, they have a lot of issues with civil rights. They haven't learned the Bill of Rights issues that, we, that we've been pretty good at. Yeah. But every country that gets their tax code low, simple, and fair and makes the entrepreneur into a hero, which is what she is and what he is, a job creator, a problem solver, those countries over the next 100 years are just going to boom. They're going to take off, aren't they? It's um, Is it – I guess, Steve, so part of the dilemma is if we want to empower these kind of um, – almost the forgottens, right? The ones that we would never consider to be economic powers or even opportunists, uh, those that live in poverty um, or, I guess, uh, or minority status. Is it – there's a lot of legislation that could take place and really, I guess, needs to take place to make your manifesto work. Absolutely. Um, the big thing is taxation and regulation, but also the school systems, I think, need to become, you know, uh, a voucher-driven, where the parents and the students are determining, um, you know, where the capital uh, flows to and let schools compete and teachers teachers compete, because I think that would 
really help education. And as a lifelong teacher, I think it would really help my field, which has been kind of nationalized and, and, and hurt in many ways because of that. But it's, it's not the power to legislate. It's the power to de-legislate is, mm. is what I think we need over the next uh, 20 or 30 years. And um, I'm a big optimist about the future, and uh, particularly in your part of the country, um, you, you, know, you guys are, have huge opportunities and a great respect for the, uh, the entrepreneurial process. And you should be very, very proud of that. Oh, that I mean, that's really good to know because sometimes you wonder uh, – how how this gets ahead i i personally as an entrepreneur it's it's one of the hardest things i i've experienced because i you don't know going in you just have a dream right you just have an idea um but then you you do you have to you have to face the taxes and you have to face the, to make sure it's legal and then competition and then cash flow there's there's a lot of these issues. How do you teach all of this? Is this a course that you'd propose? Um, how do you teach it? If somebody's gone to MBA school, it's still hard. How do you teach somebody that's just struggling without a lot of education? Um, you are totally right. One of the hardest things to do uh, in the world, any place in the world, is to start a business and keep it going. And it's also a political act. I think the most political revolutionary act you can do in a positive sense uh, that encourages liberty and, and self-reliance is to, is to start a business. Um, the younger you start, the better people get at it. I was an elementary school teacher for four years, and I taught every business concept in first grade, mm. with the exception of net present value, which is, you know, uh, a complex topic that you pretty much get in MBA school. But I found that it's just like soccer or golf or football, baseball or science or writing or speaking. Human beings get very good at those things, primarily because they start as children. Um, and tragically, globally, the um, education for entrepreneurs has been primarily passed down from parents to children. Mm. That the school system has not said, oh my heavens, we need to teach every child how to own and how to be an entrepreneur. Because it's not just being an entrepreneur, it's also the craft of owning the output of the entrepreneurial process. Otherwise, you end up creating wealth for someone else. So making those high priorities in our school systems everywhere in the world, not just uh, here in America, but everywhere in the world, I think we can create great abundance, a lot of happiness, and destroy poverty once and for all. Mm. No, I I agree. And I, and I think, boy, to put it back, to put the power back in the hands of the people on that level, um, could be incredibly empowering. I mean, that that's to to have to have your own ability to influence and know how to do it, and know that you can influence your own family's lives, your own careers, and your own financial destiny. That's so freeing. What would you suggest as we as we kind of go forward? And um, how how do I get my kids? Like you say, you teach a lot of this to your kids. How do you do it? How do we 
get it instilled and down to the to the ground level with my kids? Um, I would I would start with the literature. Um, I've written a, a, you know thirty eight books for children. You can uh, find all of them on the internet. Uh, they were written both for in school and for uh, children that are homeschooled. But you just go to Amazon.com and you type my last name in, which is M-A-R-I-O-T-T-I, like Marriott yeah. uh, Hotel, but with an I at the end. And my first name is Steve. And uh, there's a great textbook that took me 20 years to write. And uh, it's um, uh, called Entrepreneurship, How to Start Knowing Your Business. And that's the top uh, junior high and, and high school textbook. Hmm. Um, and it's used by the organization that I founded, um, the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, which is uh, based in New York City and run by this incredible young man uh, named Sean Osborne. But I encourage communities to start their own programs. And it's not that hard. You'll find a local person who's had small business experience, likes working with young people, and get together a board of advisors, order some curriculum, take them on field trips to local businesses, take them to a wholesaler, and then take them to a flea market, and then always, every year, have them write a business plan. And all that stuff is outlined in the books I've I've, Hmm. I've written. And um, I I encourage people to to actually start their, their own programs and just call it the Young Entrepreneurs Program of of uh, Brigham Young, yeah. the Entrepreneur's Program of Celine or whatever. And Nifty uh, is great as a resource. Our uh, website is www.nfte, Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship.com. Um, it's a nonprofit, but we use .com. And then a school that I think... Um, people should look more at a college is is Philadelphia University uh, where I'm a fellow at now and it's an incredible school where every young person makes something and learns how to sell it and Mm. to market it it's um, a genius and a lot of people um, not um, out west in particular have not been aware of it and I want to raise the awareness for their uh, type of multi-disciplinary um, and experiential education. It's, so, I mean, the, the interesting thing, there are resources. I guess this would be an ideal thing for school teachers, uh, you know, and, and just families, parents, clubs. Like you could create a club. You could create uh, something in, an, in a school. And uh, what a great way to give back. I mean, if you just had one or two real businesses come out of that a year, how empowering. Absolutely. And I even look at it more fundamentally than that. If if you have every child in the state do a simple five-page business plan on their comparative advantage, that would change the state as much as anything a politician could do, hmm. in my opinion, or any one person could do. And you just make it into a contest, and and you have a, a three-day period where every child focuses on a business idea, either individually or, or as a group. I'm trying to get that going globally, where every child in the world 
and there are one billion children that live in poverty. It's horrible, and and they're recruited to be you know terrorists and all this stuff where they're normal people, just like you know you and I, yeah. our neighbors, and, and just want to live uh, uh, normal lives and create uh, value and wealth. But in, when you're in poverty, it's so painful. You'll do almost anything to get out of it. So I look at this movement as a global movement for every child in the world. And if if we even every year, every uh, every one day or two days a year, every child wrote a business plan and tried to sell one thing for a dollar, I think psychologically we would we uh, we huge breakthroughs in a, a lot of. Um, uh, problems that we have on a global basis. Mm. No, I agree. That's powerful. Okay, well, I think uh, it's the beginning, isn't it? it? Steve, we appreciate you being with us. What a great thing I think you're offering uh, the the people of, um, I mean, our kids, to be able to just get that they can be a creative source and that they already could have a competitive advantage. Uh, wow changing the paradigm as well as the economics of our country. Go check out uh, the book and and the website, nfte.com, Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, and also go look up uh, Steve's book about uh, the Entrepreneur's Manifesto and Entrepreneur's Manifesto plus all of his other uh, materials for learning entrepreneurship and teaching entrepreneurship by Steve Mariotti. back with the rest of today's Matt Townsend episode. We just finished up an interview with Steve Mariotti, who shared his vision for the future of entrepreneurship and his movement to teach teens in lower-income communities entrepreneurship principles and the importance of empowering them to be able to raise their own communities economically. You know, whether it is the solution to ending poverty in inner cities, I don't know. But entrepreneurship does have a huge influence on our culture and the structure of our nation. Our nation was built on dreams and has grown immensely thanks to the diversity of entrepreneurs that have been birthed in this country. So I think it is important to discuss business practices and principles. We're going to close off today's episode with an interview with Jeanette Bennett. She is a businesswoman and a mother, and she's going to give some tips on how to be a good business leader and manage a family at the same time. So talk to us about what are some of the keys to running a business? What are the leadership must-haves? I think setting a vision is the number one thing that a leader does. They say to the team, "This this is the goal. When we're turning a magazine in and I'll say, okay, we are going to the printer August 25th. It's got to happen. That's the day it happens. If I said the magazine's got to go to the printer August 15th, it would get done that day too. And if I said September 15th, we would be finishing it up at the very last minute. It takes what – to whatever date I say, it takes us that long. So to set the vision, this is the goal. This is what we're working towards. And I do that at home too. You know, When I say to my kids, this summer, which they loved it this summer, we're going to clean the house. Oh, yeah. That's horrible. We're going to go through the storage room and the garage <laughs> by the time school starts and other things. You know, I had I had some uh, 
uh, leadership books, actually, that I wanted him to read this summer. So I set the vision for that. Did you really? I did. You got your children reading leadership books. I gave them a stack so they could choose from the stack. Right. But they had to, they had to read them and report on them. What a mom. Did they – like my, my kids are reading leadership books because they're, they're in student body officers or whatever. And yeah. that I – mean, we're still struggling getting that done. They're looking for the audios now. Right. Well, and they would say, can I switch it out for this fiction book, Candy Shop War or something? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can read Candy Shop War and you can read Who Moved My Cheese and The Slide Edge and all of those those books. So I think a leader says, "Okay, this is the vision and then excitedly and passionately sets the vision and then holds people accountable along the way. Do you sense that the vision – does the vision tend to – does it come top down – because they have to set it, mm-hmm. or does it come bottom up? Like, do you get the vision because you're just this intuitive visionary that knows where to take it next, or do you just read the vibrations coming from your company? I mean, you've got dozens of people putting out a magazine, and you've, they've got to be giving you feedback that's they percolating do. up, and then that that I'm sure inspires part of the vision. And I think that's another leadership skill: is being a listener, not thinking you yeah. know everything, you know, asking the people who are. In the trenches, and I'm in the trenches with them, so I see a lot of the things that they're seeing. But I think being a listener, but then it does take a leader to set that goal. Because you can't say, go everywhere. You can't. In a magazine, that it's expensive. So wherever you put your resources, it's got to hit. It's got to hit. You've, you've got to hit the mark. And I've found that it takes one leader. In fact, working with my husband, one of the things that I've noticed is um, – if we're both in charge of something, neither one of us are in charge. It never, it doesn't if, go anywhere. If someone emails both of us, the chances of them getting a response go down, which is sad. Oh, because you you defer to him. And I'm he thinking, defers oh, he'll you. write back. He's got more time. <laughs> I mean, he's got nothing going on. He's not even a he's not even a mother. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, what do dads do? Just kidding. He's <laughs> an awesome. He's yeah. an awesome dad. He he's uh, home picking up from football right now. Actually, is he really? at, this, at this very moment. So he no, he's a great great dad. But I do think that. Um, there's got to be one one leader setting the vision who who is accountable and and people respond to that and so and I think that that works at home too. So at home, Matt and I, you know, I before I did the book thing this summer, I told him what I was going to do, and he's like, "Yeah, that's cool." You Just know, do it. Yeah, let's do it. That'd be cool. And he suggested some of the books that were in the pile of options, and and uh, but then it was you know my vision and. And I hold the kids accountable. And do you, then when, when the kids read the book, you sit down and they have to do a report. And then I guess that creates a really good conversation. Right. And then we talk about, well, what, how does that affect you? You're in eighth grade. Holy you know, how, how can you um, implement that? Or my, my daughter is going to be the senior class president this fall. So a lot of it's hitting home for her. Uh, but even the younger ones, I want them to learn those skills because I didn't. Yeah. You know, I was a, a quiet little girl, loved journalism, loved reading, loved writing. And then I got thrown in leadership positions in my high school jobs and college. I was the editor of the newspapers and on different leadership committees and things. So I had to learn it. Mm. And so I want my children to uh, be exposed to those principles now. Yeah. Yeah. And do you, um, I mean, because like I, I remember too, I didn't, I, I, I don't know that I read a book. In high school. It comes naturally. And we didn't even have the internet back there, so I had no excuse. Um, I, but I did have encyclopedias and dictionaries that I could go to to you know, put together a report. But um, I read right out of high school. I read – no, right – and then I went on an LDS mission. And then right after that, I went um, – I read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Right. And it changed my life. And then I got to work with the man, Stephen Covey, mm-hmm. and got to teach those principles. And so I remember kind of a dream coming true of, of 
reading the book, having the goal, and then it coming to fruition about eight years later, seven years later, wow. it happened. And mm-hmm. so to have your kids learning that in eighth grade? That book was one of the ones in the pile. They didn't pick that one. I'll have to maybe require that in the future. Have them read the teen's book. That's okay. a little I'll easier. I'll have to grab that one. Yeah. Stephen Covey was one of my favorite interviews. It was really? Because I had studied his book, mm-hmm. and so many of his phrases have become yeah. part of our culture and our language. And uh, he exhibited those principles. Oh, he he totally carried did. my bag to the car at the end. Did he really? He was. Did you check for 70s. your wallet? Because sometimes he would do that. <laughs> we probably needed my ten bucks. <laughs> yeah, he did. You know? he, he, but he totally lived it to the T. Mm-hmm. Like I remember being in a meeting that he didn't feel was going well, and he kind of stopped it, and we had a prayer. Wow. Because he felt like we were all kind of off target and, wow. and contentious. And it was That's amazing. Impressive. I mean, it was like, who does that in a business meeting? That's impressive. And so – That's leadership. And by the way, going back to vision, he knew his vision. He, he and his family had like a – I can't remember. It was, it was a one or two, three-word mission statement. And he said anytime anyone else would use that phrase – it's like they were using it in vain. They had no idea what that meant. What that meant Because the family wow. had spent so much time talking about it. Right. In his home, he has this two-story library with, with quotes and verses and things inscribed in the wall. Wow. And I came home and said, okay, we need a new house with a two-story library. Yeah, you need a library. <laughs> Did you make one? Did you tear out the, one of the kids' Not yet. Rooms? Not yet. Oh, but when they move on, you can do it. But we do post quotes on post-it notes and little cut-up pieces of paper. But I loved that he surrounded himself with the principles he wanted to exhibit. That was a lesson to me. That, that probably didn't come naturally for him either. Right. He taught himself those things. No, totally. And then he's taught the rest of us that as well. And he's so family-oriented. There's so many great stories in some of his books about his kids. So if he were ever on the phone, um, one time he got interrupted at dinner and there was a rule that the family had made that there's no phone calls, no business can be transacted during dinner because it's sacred. Dinner, family time is dinner time. And he took, he had to take a phone call. Like it was for a big deal. It was to close one of his biggest deals. And uh, while he was on the phone, his kids, he had violated the rule. So the kids came over and they took peanut butter and they they made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on his head. Oh, my goodness. On his he's bald, bald head. His right? bald head. And they made this sandwich and put it all together for him. And he had to just take it because it was back in the day when you, he had a corded phone that he couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> and he didn't want to make noise. So he just covered the thing and they just made a mockery of him. Oh, my goodness. And he just took it. He could have been mad. He could have been – but he broke the rules. Yeah, so there are I guess consequences there's to leadership, that. right? So you set down the culture and right. he had a family culture where – we hold each other accountable. Mm, good for it's him. It's pretty cool. That is cool. I mean, it'd be like I, I can't see your kids doing that to you. You uh, have peanut butter in your hair. No, and I will say I have violated that rule. I've had my phone at the table. Oh, nowadays it's even harder, it right. seems like. How do you, how do you lead in, with technology? How do you lead at work? How do you lead at home to make it so we don't get 500 emails how do you lead that? Oh, I'm still working on that. One of our family roles is, and I think a lot of families have this, is the phones go in the kitchen at night. And on Sundays, they're supposed to stay in the kitchen as well. So you can look at it. You, know, you just so have you, to you be might, in the kitchen. Yeah, you might get a text from grandma, maybe, yeah. you know, or something like that. Fern. Fern might call from heaven. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, they're supposed to stay in the kitchen so that we can hopefully have family. Because there's been those unfortunate times where you look around the room and we are all, we're all together and we're all on our phones. It's and so it's true. pathetic. Isn't that sad? And you're texting each other. Right. <laughs> Have you seen this? <laughs> right. Instead of using words, you're like, you've got to see this video. Yeah. Right. But then this is what's so strange. In that same – we've done this recently too where we all sit around 
it's a really fun family night where you you can put uh, your favorite YouTube. You just you anyone can throw it up onto our Apple TV, and now cool. everybody can share their funniest stuff, and I it like creates that. a cool moment. Right. So we have moments like that where you can benefit, but then if you're not careful, all of a sudden you're just vegging in a room together. It's so true, and I think adults and teenagers alike are struggling with that. Yeah. Uh, we have a family group text that it's that's useful and funny. And so I like bonding with the kids over that, you That's know, cool. where, we, where we share cool things. And then uh, there's a Facebook page for my extended family, my siblings, and also Matt's. And, and so technology can be a very personal, very bonding, very fun thing. If you lead it. If you lead out and if you have some boundaries that you set and keep. It's good stuff. We're speaking with Jeanette Bennett, uh, who is the founder and editor-in-chief at Bennett Communications. And uh, they run three ba- three magazines, Utah Valley Magazine, Business Q Magazine, and Prosper Magazine. We'll continue the leadership and business discussion as well as how do you manage a family at the same time? Can you get it all done? Of course you can. Uh, Jeanette's doing it with five children in tow and a husband in tow. Or right, he's in the most co- co- Co-leadership. I'm bringing him along. That's right. <laughs> this is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Wow, some great points we heard today. Jeanette taught us the business principle of setting a vision, of deciding on a goal or a deadline and sticking with it. Neil Patel taught us the importance of having unshakable confidence and focusing on each task we do rather than trying to multitask. And Steve Mariotti brought on a unique perspective on the future of entrepreneurship. He said the people we should be teaching these business principles to aren't necessarily those you might think of first. It's not necessarily the children of billionaires, but rather the children and teens living in lower income communities and those with disabilities and other tough life challenges because they have drive hard work, and a different perspective of life instilled in them, all of which would translate really well in the world of entrepreneurship. Like how Neil said to use fear and fuel and believe things can happen, whether you are the son or daughter of a billionaire or you come from the lower income inner city communities, one global principle of entrepreneurship is hard work. No matter your circumstance, You're going to have to learn how to work hard and persevere sometime along the path of entrepreneurship because no one makes it far on the easy train. Well, thanks for listening to today's episode, everyone. I'm Liana Tan. Join me again next time for another episode of Matt Townsend. 